and we are back with living the guide life today things are starting to look good in minnesota finally i'm starting to realize that the whole covid deal is starting to wrap up here um starting to be able to open things back up here in minnesota and kind of get things back to the way they were in a sense um super excited about that different things that are happening that you know allow people to get back out and do their thing and kind of just roll with how that is um i know they're looking to not enforce the mask mandate inside um i think july 1st it is so exciting pieces about that happening in minnesota um a lot of good things still going on as well with turkey hunting doing a lot of that getting ready for uh ready for fishing here pretty soon um not i think it's next weekend we're gonna start rolling in got uh the opener for minnesota that's always a fun time getting out on the boat getting back into the water i know a lot of the big lakes like malax and stuff are gonna have quite a few people on them like they always do so that'll be fun to kind of hear some of the fishing reports on how things are looking for this year um how people are catching them and just exciting to be back and start to see things uh bloom again nice kind of nice in minnesota i mean we're sitting at about 60 degrees so about the usual usual what we get up here around this time um hopefully looking to do some fly fishing here pretty soon get back on the you know small creeks and stuff like that down in uh southeast minnesota and yeah i mean it's just a good time get to discuss some turkey hunting and uh, a few different topics here and there but today we are brought to you by chasing fowl outfitters come make sure to check us out uh look us up shoot me a text shoot me a call whatever it is um even if you just want to hear more about it on what what we got going on and what uh this fall is going to look like for us i know it's going to be very fun this year so yeah i mean my my phone's open just kind of reach out to me um instagram works out as well so just uh get out there and check out see what we got going on and kind of hear more about it and we also are brought to you by bourbon media um a lot of big things uh starting to come along and very exciting time to be a part of this very pumped to kind of show you guys on more of an aspect of the onion industry and how we can uh, market it better and kind of update some of uh, some people's websites and different stuff like that to really change the game in the hunting industry and modernize um, what we've been holding back a little bit. So I'm going to give Bourbon Media a quick minute here to uh, kind of, you know, just discuss more on it. If you're a small business owner in the outdoor industry, we get it. The words digital marketing can be intimidating. You're a grunt work, sweat it out, bust your chops kind of person who's addicted to progress and put all of your time and energy into operating your business. We at Bourbon Media can help you push it even further. We're digital marketing experts. I'm talking web development, content creation, social media management, SEO, paid advertising, the whole nine yards. And as fellow outdoorsmen, we know the industry. Keep your business up to date and expand your reach with digital marketing that is directed at your core market. We are Bourbon Media. Cheers to progression. And yeah, so that was just a great way to, you know, reach out and 
show people what we kind of got going on. The website designs are kind of moving and grooving and as well as just content creation. That's a big thing right now in the hunting industry. Um, a lot of people are trying to get into that and just to display your work um, and modernize it because, you know, there is a lot of people that are doing it. Um, but also there's a need for it right now. So people are trying to get out there and trying to show what they have to offer and tell their stories and reaching out to some outfitters and stuff like that. If you're a in- incoming content creator, it's a great time to do it. Just uh, reach out and let them know. Do a do a side work for uh, free and just kind of show them what you have to offer. And that's really how you build up your brand it's not going to be overnight so kind of just showing that is a great way and we'll be able to kind of produce some more content on that uh, upcoming and it's going to be very exciting but today super fun chat with dr mike chamberlain um about turkey hunting had an absolute blast discussing on what they see down in georgia and what they do to really figure out how to produce more turkeys and get people out in the woods and all the data that they've you know started to create that'll be uh, moving forward and showing the states on what needs to happen and how we can help build that environment for turkeys and what we could be doing i mean even if you don't own a piece of property go reach out to an aunt or uncle or grandpa or grandma and say i'd love to go uh kind of spruce up your habitat a little bit on your property and i don't see why they wouldn't uh be opposed to that so just dig into that kind of stuff and it's truly a treat to get to sit down and talk with the wild turkey doctor so you guys are going to enjoy this one right in the middle of turkey hunting and kind of give you some more insight on what to be looking for in the woods so enjoy yeah i bet i bet it's uh it's getting hot down here <laughs> yeah oh i can imagine how's uh how long does your guys' turkey season run down there? Uh, we've got about another eight, nine, ten days, and then it's out. It's uh, I think for many people, it's pretty much over. The yeah. uh, gobbling activity has dropped off dramatically, and it's been tough the last week. Yeah. And why does the – what's the theory behind the gobbling activity dropping off like that? Uh, we're late in the breeding season. I mean, most of our – almost all of our hens that are going to nest are already either on the nest or they've hatched or failed. So there's not a lot of motivation if you're a Tom to to gobble at this point. It's also, uh, you know, if you think about it, I mean, it makes sense. A lot of the vocal birds are either dead or they, they've been spooked or educated to not gobble as much. So you you just kind of naturally see less gobbling activity later in the season in most places in Georgia, certainly, certainly that the case. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I had a couple of buddies that were uh, hunting down in like Mississippi and then like South Carolina and stuff like that over the spring. They just noticed like, it's very hard to hunt birds down there compared to like up North. um, Yeah. Just because the, gobbling they gobble on the roost a little bit and then they just kind of stop i don't know what the theory on that would be but um yeah i thought that was pretty interesting 
our birds are pretty heavily hunted down here. They get they get a lot of pressure, and um, you've also got pretty diverse predator communities down here that aren't the same communities you have up north. So there's a lot of things trying to kill birds here and harass birds. So they get pretty tight lipped. Um, we see almost all of our gobbling in the deep South. I say almost all, a lot of the gobbling, more than 70% is either on the roost or within the first few minutes of flying down. And then they, then they get pretty quiet. Makes it tough. Yeah. I saw on one of your, um, like reports on different types of like, what the pressure affects the gobbling or like the weather affects the gobbling and notice kind of the same stuff up here in Minnesota on like if the pressure is higher than you're going to hear more gobbling. If the weather was colder, you kind of hear more gobbling as well. Um, just kind of noticed that throughout the 30 season because ours was pretty cold. We had like, I mean, our opening day was like 19 degrees. For yes. Us. Yeah. And so, yeah. And that day that you're talking about is, you know, at least here in the south and east, our seasons, you know, it's warm when our seasons get going. And then sometimes it's hot. Like right now, it's it's warm. Yesterday, it was – we hunted all morning, and, and it was it was brutal. I mean, we were yeah. sweating. We were dripping sweat. Um, so a cooler-than-average day would logically translate to the birds kind of gearing up a little bit. The barometric pressure issue is just – uh, it's kind of, I think it's kind of common sense. You, you yeah. get weather systems that pass and the barometric pressure starts rising. And when you have rising pressure, you have improving weather conditions. So it kind of makes sense that you hear more birds gobbling then. Yeah. Is there anything other that you've kind of noticed um, being in the field that affects the gobbling as well? And there's also, there's all sorts of things that influence it. I mean, we know that testosterone levels in toms dictates gobbling activity to some degree, and those those levels oscillate during the season. So, you know, you may have really good weather one day, and you hear a lot of birds, and then the next day you have the same weather, and you don't hear as many birds. Okay. And what birds you hear, they don't gobble nearly as well. Some of that is just oscillations in testosterone levels within in, within individual birds so they're not as aggressive one day as they were the previous day um, we also see that wind obviously is kind of a negative we're not exactly sure that that means that birds don't gobble as much when it's windy or we just can't hear them as well when it's windy but it makes sense to me that they wouldn't gobble as much when it's windy because the sound gets, it's called sound attenuation. Basically this notion that when they gobble on a windy day, it tears the, sh the gobble up, it shreds it all up. So hens can't hear it as well. So it makes sense, I think. Why would you gobble when you pretty much know that your sound's not projecting like it should? So yeah. that's kind of what we see. Oh, absolutely. And I wanted to hear more about your backstory on how you got into being a professor and then knowing so much about turkeys uh <laughs> i guess i'll start with the, the backdrop um i was just a suburban kid that we grew up in a house with a dad that hunted and um he was a weekend warrior like a lot of us are and yeah he worked all week and he he worked really hard and and 
the only day that we could hunt was Saturday. And I grew up in Virginia and at the time you couldn't hunt on Sundays. So, hmm. um, we'd go to the camp every Saturday or we'd go do something every Saturday, fish, hunt, whatever it was. And I just became interested in, in hunting and outdoors. The Turkey side of it really was just almost like slap ass luck. I mean, really, it, it really was. <laughs> I was offered a position to go to grad school and I was given the choice of three different research projects and I chose the turkey research project that was available and I was a turkey hunter and I was interested in turkeys but I I didn't think I'd work with them you know throughout my career but once I started studying the bird in particular trying to trap the bird and track them with radio telemetry I became infatuated with their behavior and then I was able to do a PhD degree, still studying turkeys, and I've been studying them ever since as an academic. The fact that I love to hunt the bird, I think just kind of reinforces my passion for them because I see them through the lens of a scientist and I see them through the lens of as a hunter. So the last five or six months, probably 10 years, I've done a lot of research on a lot of critters, but by far turkey research has dominated my career thus far yeah and what would you say the most influential piece of research you've done for wild turkeys hmm, that's a good question um i would say probably here in the south at least some of the work that we've done on prescribed fire and how it influences turkey behavior has been as influential as anything, it, but that's fairly specific to the South. Yeah. The, um, the recent work we've, we've done looking at gobbling activity and how it's influenced by hunting activity and, and these other things that this bird is exposed to, that's probably been the most discussed work but honestly, man, I, I mean, I've published, I don't even know how many peer-reviewed papers I've published on turkeys, <laughs> many, many dozen, maybe a hundred. I don't even know. It's been a yeah. lot. And um, I'd like to think that all of it's been impactful to some degree, but I think probably the work that's more recent has had a greater impact because um, I have a little bit more reach now than maybe I did a few years ago. And people are seeing and hearing about the work. And they find it interesting. So uh, I, I would probably say the stuff we've done the past few years has been the most impactful. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you brought up the fires. We uh, we have a lot of prescribed fires where I turkey hunt down in like southeast Minnesota. And so, I mean, I've noticed that once it really starts to like the green sprouts come up, they just really dig into like the tops of the fields and like just go up, go crazy for them after oh, yeah. it's been burned. Oh yeah. Yeah. Turkeys are, they're inextricably linked to fire and have been historically yeah. any, any disturbance that causes plants to regenerate is usually positive to some degree, but, but fire because of the way it removes old senescent vegetation and stimulates new vegetation um is particularly positive because it also 
positively affects insect communities hmm. and insects are a lot of what turkeys eat in the spring and summer so yeah fire in most areas is 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 positive now when i say fire i mean low intensity fire not wildfires like you see out west i mean those are certainly not positive for turkeys or, or most other species yeah oh absolutely and with prescribed burns um what are the some of the things like that could help build the environment. Like let's say if I wanted to go create more environment for turkeys on a property, like would you say prescribed burns are a way to do that? Or would there be something else that I could do? Fire could be, it really just depends on the landscape that you're living on. Yeah. In a general sense, turkeys, they dramatically change their, their habitat selection as the year progresses. So unlike with some other species that we that we hunt that tend to be kind of static throughout the year in regards to what they use turkeys you know in the fall and winter they're using areas where they can get mast or other other food sources like acorns agricultural crops whatever and then they completely shift in the spring and they they move to more upland areas where they've got nesting cover where toms can display for hens and they could breed and then in the summer they well meanwhile while they're doing all this they're they're in huge flocks in the winter and then there are smaller groups in the spring and then the hens are by themselves while they're nesting and then they all get back together during the summer in smaller groups and then those smaller groups get back into those larger winter flocks so you you basically see this bird goes through this process of shifting its home range during the year um so it really depends on one where you are in the world and two what part of the bird's annual cycle your property is supporting so Mm -hmm. i I get this question a lot like well turkeys disappeared from my property in march and they showed back up in july or i don't have any turkeys in the fall and winter and all of a sudden they show up in march yeah and what i tell people what you're seeing is for whatever reason you have habitat that's providing something the bird uses during the fall and say and then they're gone because they're you don't have breeding habitat you don't have nesting cover you don't have brooding cover so they're leaving and going somewhere else or vice versa so with turkeys you you kind of have to kind of have to look at what part of the year your property is capable of supporting their activity and then go from there. So for to your original question, well, fire, yeah, fire could be particularly positive if you have areas where they're brooding and you're trying to produce succulent vegetation that's real short and low growing and be attractive to, to bugs and therefore would be attractive to hens with poults, then yeah, prescribed burning could be could be something that would that would help you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, you mentioned, uh, how turkeys can be in one spot and then totally disappear. That's what I've noticed too, is like out at my parents' place, they won't be there like literally all year round. And then once March comes, they're there for three super hard weeks of like being in our field every morning. Uh, I plan a food plot usually for deer out there for like clover and kind of all the prenup stuff. So they use that up quite a bit, but that's what I've kind of noticed on. They just 
for three weeks straight, they're down there every morning. Yeah, that's what you see with birds pretty much throughout their their range, and not just easterns, but the other subspecies. You, you tend to see they kind of shift. Yeah. I was just out in South Dakota and Nebraska for a trip, and I, I heard the same thing from everyone I was around. Hey, I don't see birds here at all. And then all of a sudden in March, they showed up and they've been here ever since. And they're going to disappear here and, you know, towards the end of May. And I won't see them again until whenever. Or, hey, that group of birds hung out around that homestead and in this, you know, this river corridor all winter. And then they disappeared. And lo and behold, they showed up five miles down the road at some other farm. Yeah, you, you see that with all of the subspecies to varying degrees some move more than others yeah yeah and i watched that uh report that you had of the hens with the backpack trackers on and how they kind of are all clumped up and then all spread out at once that was really neat yeah that that's also a common behavior basically what what we do is we catch birds in the winter we do that because they're in big groups and you can fire a net and get eight or 10 or 12 or however many birds at one time. Yeah. And you put GPS backpacks on them and they stick together. And then all of a sudden it looks like a bomb goes off and you've got turkeys almost, I liken it kind of like to a fire that throws a bunch of embers out and those embers are the hens and they're just scattering around like a spider web across the landscape. They do that at least down South, they do that in in march in late march they'll just explode out of these flocks and go everywhere and then they're a real nightmare to track um and then they'll they'll actually you know go to nest and then they come back together mid-ish summer which down here you know by mid-june you've got birds that are back in groups (laughs) okay absolutely and I wanted to ask you on, so I, when I was turkey hunting up here for our first week, it was very cold. Um, and then we had like two days where it jumped up to 60 degrees. And what I noticed is like every day that it was cold, they were feeding down in corn or soybeans. And then the day that it was really warm, like every pasture that we had permission to, they were in there. Is that yeah. kind of just like they're feeding on the grain because it's so cold, just like geese and ducks would do or yeah yeah just high energy yeah 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 i mean when you're when it's cold and you don't want to burn up your fat reserves you eat things that allow you to to gain carbs and energy quick and grains and hard mass and things like that that would be food items they would select when it's when it's chilly yeah yeah and i thought that was kind of neat learn something more about that because usually it's decently warm when we go out and hunt but this year is just super cold like yeah luckily, yeah and, and during during our trapping seasons that's what we we pray for cold weather because yeah. we use corn we use corn to bait so uh, we're always praying for a super cold winter because then the birds are easier to catch because they'll they'll come to the bait when it's super warm out and in our winters down south it's a it can be a grind because they don't need to eat the corn they're eating other things so it it makes trapping tough yeah how many birds do you guys usually trap when you net per Uh, so 
so I've got crews on a, a bunch of different study sites. So on each site, we we may try to catch. Well, we try to catch as many as we can, but we may we may only have funding to purchase, say, 40 or 50 GPS units per site or 30 or whatever it is. So we're trying to catch as many as we can up to that number. And then at least for Tom's, a lot of times we're we're just catching as many as we can and banding them, putting leg bands on. Yeah. And we're doing that because we're trying to get data on harvest rates. In other words, you know, we banned a bunch of birds. What percentage of them are are shot by hunters? So, bottom line is, we're trying to we're trying to net as many as we can every year. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then for the banding projects, are those like do people report them into you then? Once like if a tom shot. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we hope that they always would. Um, they don't. Well, they don't. I mean, we know that birds get shot and aren't reported, and um, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. But that's the way that that life and humans often work. Is they, I think, in some cases, folks they shoot a bird and they think maybe they've done something wrong. You know, uh, they they walk up to it and they say, "Oh my gosh, it's got a tracking device on it and it's banded." You know, I screwed up, and so we try to we try to do as much outreach as we can and make sure hunters understand that. Just like shooting a banded duck, you haven't done anything wrong. And in fact, you've you've shot a really cool, unique bird. We yeah. just want the data off of it. You know, we don't we don't need the band back. We don't need any of that. We just want to know that the bird is dead. And um, so I think we get pretty good reporting. And the work we've done, I've done work in other many other states where we've looked at this, and we actually ended up finding that you do get a pretty, pretty high percentage of bands reported because the hunter is really interested in where, where was this bird caught and how old is it? And, you know, those types of things. And we always provide the hunters with that, with that information. Well, that's really cool. That's really neat. And then how do, how long do those like GPS transmitters last? About a year. About a year. Yeah. You you can get them to, to last longer, but most of the work that I've done thus far, although we're, we're shifting course a little bit for the next few years, but the work I've done thus far, we were collecting a lot of data in that year because we want to understand at a really fine scale how far the birds are moving, where they're roosting, you know, are they nesting successfully? So, so we're getting a lot of locations every day and that burns the battery up in the unit. Yeah. So if you're willing to get less information, you the the units will last longer. But pretty much a year is what we're what we're doing now. Okay. And then it just stays on the bird from there. Do you guys recapture it or anything like that? Sometimes we do. Sometimes we we'll recatch a bird and put a new a new package on. Um, if we don't, they just fall off. That they're attached with this with like parachute cord. Um, and if you, if you know about parachute core, it's got, this stuff has a, a rubber core inside of it. And then it's covered with like the nylon webbing. Well, the rubber, that's the core of the tube kind of allows the, the harness to stretch a little bit. So it, you know, if the bird moves or, or whatever, it kind of gives with the bird. So yeah. it doesn't restrict their movement. But what happens is after a couple of years, that tubing breaks and the unit just falls off. So we'll recapture birds that 
were wearing a GPS four or five years ago, and when we recapture them, they don't have it on anymore. All we all we see is the leg band that's still there. So it's that unit's laying out there somewhere in the back forty. <laughs> we don't know we don't know where it's at because we're no longer able to track it. Okay, I see. And do you get more of your like? Would you rather band a hen or would you rather band a tom when you're looking for this information? Most of our work is on hens because okay. because we're looking at reproductive stuff. We're looking at nesting success brood survival, those types of things. Mm. Some of my work has been entirely focused on toms, looking at uh, interactions with hunters, because we often will GPS hunters as well. We'll ask hunters to to carry GPS units in their, in their vest so we can track hunter behavior as well. Um, so it, it's mostly on hens right now, but I've done work on toms, and we continue to, to – to collect some data on toms every year. Um, again, a lot of it's geared around what percentage are being harvested because the agencies really want to know that piece of information. Yeah, absolutely. And you were talking about you put GPS trackers on hunters sometimes. Is that for like all public land that you would go out there and like hand out GPS trackers or how do you guys do that? Yeah, so what we've done in the past is we catch a lot of these birds on public land, not all. Uh, some we catch through the graciousness of private landowners that, that own properties that are adjacent to public lands, or maybe it's a private inholding. Okay. And those private landowners really, really are the backbone of a lot of our work because at least down here, our heavily pressured public lands, birds will often shift off of those properties onto less pressured private tracks. And if we couldn't get access to those properties to trap, we wouldn't catch as many birds. So we we're very fortunate that private landowners are willing to work with us. But uh, but yeah, basically what we do is just we we put out signage, we we post on social media, we get game wardens to help kind of publicize to hunters, hey, if you're willing to cooperate with this study, stop by, grab a GPS unit, or my, my graduate students will meet with people and just give them the unit and say, hey, it's already turned on, just stick it in your vest. And when you're done today, just drop it off here at the check station and I'll pick it up. And that's how we that's how we do it. It's really cool. Yeah, I, I feel like more people, or I see a lot more public land hunting down where you guys are for wild turkeys and up here um, in Minnesota. I don't know why that'd be, but I just kind of noticed that. Do you guys get quite a few public land hunters? Oh yeah. Yeah, it's a circus on, on a lot yeah. of areas. Yeah, we get, it really depends on where you are, but, but yes, in a general sense, public lands down here get a tremendous amount of pressure particularly those that are within a fairly short drive of major metropolitan areas like Atlanta or Charlotte, Birmingham. You pick some of the larger southern cities, and if they're public lands within an hour of those places, they get get a lot of pressure. Um, 
and what what you see in the south which is i mean it's, it's similar up north in some ways but the land ownership pattern in the south it, you know what you've what you've seen is large tracts of private land they still exist but a lot of large tracts of private land have been split up into smaller tracts of private land and lease prices are quite high in the south so a lot of people just aren't in a situation where they can lease land. They, they're financially not in a situation where they can make it work. So, so they hunt public lands as they should be able to do. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And do you see most of the guys, if they're hunting public land, are they using decoys or are they kind of walking around and just calling, trying to find the bird or, you know, maybe reaping them? I know there's a lot of controversy right now and the reaping aspect of turkey hunting. Yeah. I don't know what your thoughts on are on that. Well, we, we see everything you can imagine with public land hunters. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, those hunters are just like me. I mean, it, in many ways, I, I don't, I try to, I try to kind of steer clear of public lands down here because I do research on a lot of those public lands and I don't want a perception of a conflict of interest like well, Mike knows where the turkeys are, you know, yeah. so I, I try to avoid that for good reason. Um, yeah. But you see, we, you see all sorts of techniques being used, you know, just like you'd see on private lands. Um, the reaping issue is a, is obviously a controversial polarizing type activity. Um, I guess at the end of the day, the way I, I look at it is first and foremost, my concern is mostly a safety issue. Um, you know, when you when you start doing activities like that, where you look like whatever animal is being hunted, that to me, in many situations, is asking for for problems. Um, so that that's one of the things I hear the most from a lot of agency people that are close friends of mine is. You know how you choose to hunt turkeys is up to you as long as it's legal then you know who am i to tell you otherwise but for god's sake just recognize that you know that activity in particular can be can be dangerous because you're trying to mimic looking like a bird that's doing the activity that that us hunters in the spring are looking for which is strutting so yeah um so yeah that's kind of my take on it yeah and i read something on the reaping aspect of like it's a lot easier for you to kill a turkey when you're reaping because you're pulling up to a tom that is in an area that wants to uh kick other toms out of um so people think it's a lot easier to kill them on that aspect yeah you know the the bottom line is we use decoys and we use these techniques because we're trying to improve our efficiency as hunters. I mean, that's the bottom line. That's why you put duck decoys out. That's why motion decoys took off in waterfowl hunting. Um, You know, I, I think it's a slippery moral slope in a lot of ways for us to, to try to dictate to one another, you know, what, we should or should not be doing as hunters. And I think turkey hunters, maybe I'm biased because I I'm immersed in this so much, but I think Turkey hunters are among, among the more opinionated hunters that are out there. And we have, 
you know, we have we have certain folks that think that decoys are bad and we have other folks that think the decoys are great and we have we have groups that you know would comment that reaping is is great and others that would say it should be illegal and you know and and everything in between and i think ultimately um we need to understand the effects of these activities on on harvest and although i agree with you and, and based on my own observations while hunting because i have i've used just about every technique that is is out there yeah. at some time in my hunting career and i've seen birds harvested over decoys on decoys beside decoys you know in front of a fan you name it i've seen people do it or experienced it myself and and i yeah i think there's probably I think there's probably some birds that, that are harvested that otherwise would not be yeah. with some of these techniques, but what that means to populations, we just don't know. And that, and we really need that information and we needed it about 10 years ago. Um, and I don't know about up your way, but that these topics are among the more controversial and contentious down here um, because we've seen declines in our populations in a lot of areas and a lot of people are concerned with you know with all aspects of turkeys it's not just the harvest and the techniques to harvest them it's everything it's predation it's habitat it's disease it's all these things so when you start talking about things like reaping and decoys and and the techniques used to hunt the bird it gets people cranky pretty fast i can imagine yeah and you're talking about the decline you guys have seen what would be one of the like bigger things that you've noticed just with the decline on what's maybe causing that there's not really you know this this is a tough question and everyone has an opinion on it but the bottom line is um there is no smoking gun i i kind of i kind of look at it like like this if you if you have and i've I've said this in other podcasts if you kind of look at turkeys and and declining populations from a coach's point of view instead of following the ball so uh, if if somebody's listening to this podcast and they've listened to this before they're gonna be like jesus he's gonna say this again (laughs) but the bottom line is you know we we as hunters we we get infatuated watching the ball in the football game we just watch the ball and the ball today is reaping and the ball tomorrow is predation and the ball next week is disease and the ball the next week after that is something else and that's the way we as human beings function i'm not casting stones i'm some i I do the same thing we get caught up in the the lust of whatever today is and we we kind of follow the ball and if you look at what a coach does a coach watches the game and he or she lets their position coaches worry about those particular spots on the field and how they're functioning. Yeah. And if you looked at turkeys under that same lens and instead of having a, a secondary coach and a linebacker coach and a, a lineman's coach and all these other things, and you instead use that analogy and think, well, the defensive line is habitat. And the linebackers, that's predation. 
In the secondary, that's a, you know the cornerbacks a disease issue, and the, the safety is is harvest, and you have all these positions on this field, and every one of those positions is influencing the outcome of the game. In one game, the defensive line is the most impactful. So let's just say in your particular area, habitat issues are the most impactful, but all of the other positions are still influencing the game. Yeah. And then one county over or 10 counties over or one state over, suddenly now it's the defensive line and the linebackers are the most impactful on the outcome and the other things are less impactful. If that's the way I kind of look at it. And, and if you look at it through that lens, what you realize is there's no way to really put your finger on a single thing that's driving the decline. It's the entire field. And in one year or one area or one spot, a certain thing is more impactful than others. But all of these things are still being impactful. And when you look at it like that, you realize just how complex these issues are. And what a challenge agencies have to try to address them. Yeah, absolutely. And that I was wondering on like how that all plays together and then deciding on what the bird limit is um, per hunter per season. So how do you guys kind of decide on if it should be one? Because ours is only one per season. We can shoot up here. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I don't have anything to do with that. So. Okay. Um, that's not in my job description. I, I just do science and I'll let the agencies dictate bag limits and seasons, but yeah, but, but most of what you see is that states, states take a, a couple of different slants. Some states have like your state has a very conservative bag limit. Other states like say Alabama or Montana, uh, Wisconsin, as, as you know, you live up there. You, you, yeah. If you play your cards right, you can you can shoot a lot of different, you know, a lot of birds because you can get permits. Um, so the the issue with that is that we don't know how many turkeys are out there. So in many ways, what you see the states do is some states just say, you know what we don't know how many birds are out there. So we're going to take a really conservative type approach like Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, or you see states like Pennsylvania, for instance, that has a modest bag limit and they open the season about timed with peaks and in incubation, which is a conservative approach and it's biologically a sound approach. Okay. Uh, and then you see other states, which is, would be a lot of the states down south where I'm at, that have fairly liberal bag limits and they have long seasons. Um, So really it's just kind of all over the map. And unfortunately what dictates a lot of that is political pressures and pressures from like us, from, from us hunters that say, you know what, I want to shoot more birds and I want to hunt longer. And therefore I'm going to put pressure on the local politicians or state politicians. And I'm going to try to influence regulatory frameworks and that's kind of what you've seen in many areas with turkeys yeah oh absolutely and you said the incubation on the part of the season that kind of peaks off what do you mean by that on when they open their seasons up towards that yeah so what what we've known for for decades is that the most conservative way to hunt and harvest this bird in the spring 
is to time the removal of males when you've reached peaks in nest incubation. And what I mean by that is when most of your hens are sitting on the nest. Okay. And the reason for that is simple uh, and it's twofold. One, if a hen is sitting still, she's not likely to be illegally killed. Um, that's one. Two, which is more important, the second aspect is once a hen is incubating a nest, she's no longer receptive to breeding. So at that point, you have some percentage of your toms that can be shot because breeding is over with um, or for the most part is over with. So that's kind of what some states in Pennsylvania is a good example. That's that's the way they've run their seasons for many, many years now is they collected the data. They realized that peaks and nest incubation were around the beginning of May, early May. So they opened their season early May. Yeah. And they have a, a fairly you know low bag limit, relatively speaking. Um, so that's what the science says. That you know that's what we've known for years is that that's the most conservative way to do it. Unfortunately, and as turkey populations were skyrocketing, you know, decades ago, yeah, I think a lot of states got lulled into this sense of you can continue to liberalize seasons, you can continue to, to increase bag limits. And we're making plenty of turkeys, so that's fine. And now we realize, I think a lot of states are realizing that that's not a sustainable approach. And maybe we need to go back to what the science said 30 years ago, which is what we just what we just discussed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Minnesota was pretty tough, like on their rules for shotgun season, because we can only hunt a week. Um, so we have a Wednesday to Wednesday to hunt. And then we have like our A, B, C, D, E, F, G mm-hmm, season. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, dude, I think it was three years ago. Cause yeah, right when I turned 18, they, uh, they had it where it was all lottery on how you get your um, certain season. So then you just put in for the lottery and then they either pick a season for you on whatever random uh, week it was. Right. And I feel like that shut down a lot of opportunity for hunters on not allowing to get out there. And now that they've opened it up, you can go buy it over the counter and choose what week you want to hunt. But I thought that was always kind of interesting on why they did that. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it varies from state to state. And, um, and I honestly, I can't answer why some states do it the way they do it. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm not involved in that process at all. So I don't really, I don't really know, but I, as I travel around, I do, the more I do travel and I love to travel in the spring yeah. <laughs> and hunt in different places and meet different people and see birds in different landscapes, the more I travel, the more I realize just how variable hunting season frameworks are for turkeys. Every state literally is different in some way. And, um, and there are some people in, in my world that in the academic world that, that suggests that we should do things differently for for turkeys and other species that maybe we should try to be more consistent across states and and i don't really disagree with that i i think probably it would help with a lot of confusion if if you had states in in particular regions like for instance in your area yeah you had three or four states at the same latitude that said okay we're, we're going to try to do this fairly similarly 
but you know as well as I do, that's not how state politics work. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we have like a cool area up here because you can go like six hours to the Black Hills and go hunt Merriams. Have you, you said you were out in South Dakota and Nebraska hunting Merriams. How was that? It was, it was incredible. We had, um, we had some really bizarre weather. It was, <laughs> it was crazy. We, you know, it was, it was 20 degrees and, um, yeah. the first day we were hunting and, and birds were still, you know, they were still doing their thing because they're not worried about a 20 degree day when it's <laughs> time to breed, but, but yeah, it was, it was fun. We, we hunted, uh, we took a single bird in each state and, and, and had a good time and met some cool people. And I, I will say that I had a lot of conversations with people that were out there and I didn't have a single conversation where it was noted to me that they were seeing more turkeys than they, than they did 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, everybody I talked to in both States said the same thing that, yeah, we've still got pretty decent numbers of birds, but, but something's going on. We're, we're not seeing as many birds as we used to. And in some cases I talked to, to several people, outfitters in Nebraska that, in particular, um, were concerned about the decline in their local areas. So I think the things that we're seeing in the deep south are more common and uniform across the species range than maybe we've thought. Um, we got some challenges for sure. And, and we can we can address those challenges. We have before. Um, we have the technology. We have the, the brain power. We just need to we just need to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for like the Black Hills of South Dakota, I feel like that's really blown up in like the past couple of years, just from what I've noticed on people going out there that I know personally or whatnot. Um, just I've seen a lot more hunters hunting the Black Hills than I ever really have, I feel like. Yeah, I, I, I heard the same thing. I heard the same conversations that, hey, we're seeing a lot more hunters and, and honestly, a, a lot of the conversations I had were what you, it, ironic, you just said that is we're seeing a lot of hunters from Wisconsin and Minnesota. Yeah. Or we're seeing a lot of hunters like you, Mike, that are coming from the deep South and they're coming up here because, you know, various reasons. One, our seasons are getting late, you know, and it's tough. Yeah. It's, it's tough. A friend of mine, my turkey hunt buddy down here, and I just talked about this yesterday as we were getting our our ass is handed to us for the third day in a row is like, you know, maybe next year we make a road trip during early May because it's gotten to be really tough down yeah. here. And I think a lot of people are doing that. And, and in particular this year, I heard a lot of discussion, you know, over coffee in the local, you know, diners that with, with COVID last year, we couldn't do anything and we were stuck everywhere. And, you know, yeah. And now this year we have some freedoms and we're, we're trying to catch up for lost time. And, um, I think there's a little bit of, probably a little bit of truth to that. Oh, absolutely. I think there's a lot of that. Um, people just want to go start traveling around because they can. And then the other side of things is social media on everyone's yeah. posting out in South Dakota <laughs> And they're like, oh, that'd be sweet to go chase Merriam's out there. I mean, it's only six hours for me. Why not go make a weekend of it? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this this topic is, a, I mean, it's 
one that would take 10 podcasts to cover, but <laughs> you know, the social media thing is I'm, I'm really active on social media. So I'm, I'm certainly not casting stones or, and, or trying to be hypocritical, but, but yeah, we, we, as Turkey hunters, we, when we put this information out for people to see and somebody that like you say is is itching to travel and they see well man these guys are really doing well or you know in nebraska for instance well let's go take a trip to nebraska and and there's you know you can buy three over-the-counter tags and you're done you know and let's just go make it happen and and that's kind of a catch-22 it's a it's a double-edged sword in many ways because we need people hunting. We need turkey hunters out there. We need them buying licenses. We need them supporting state agencies. We need those things. Yeah. But we also have a fairly, you know, we have a limited resource. And at some point, there's going to, I think, have to be a little bit better balance in every state um, in regards to what we, you know, what we take out of these populations because there's so much interest in, in this. And that's a, that's yeah. a great thing. It's a, you know, it's great that people want to hunt this bird and they, they have fun and they're enjoying themselves and they're traveling and they're pumping money into state economies. That's all that's great. Yeah. But you have to have a resource that's sustainable because if you don't, at some point, you know, I, I stopped going to Nebraska because, or, you know, I'm just pulling the scenario. I, yeah. I stopped going wherever because either I'm encountering a lot of people or I'm not hearing birds like I used to, or my, the bottom line is my level of satisfaction is declining. Yeah. And when we get to that point, we've, we've gone too far. And I think in a lot of these states where folks like us are, you know, they want to travel to these states and they want to experience those things. I think those agencies have a real challenge ahead to try to balance our our lust and zeal to do this activity with the fact that there's only enough certain number of birds that can be harvested and that's going to take some some work on the agency's parts yeah and you mentioned the satisfaction piece of it on just like the gobbling people go out there they want to hear gobbles like that's why i like to go turkey hunt and it makes it fun um I don't know. Yeah. If you start to see less gobbling, like you're saying, whatnot, that's going to start affecting the hunting. There's no question. I mean, we know from, from research that gobbling activity is the primary determinant of hunter satisfaction. We know that. Yeah. You know, all things being equal, if I can go hear a bird and in particular set up on a bird and play the game, I'm happy. And yeah. most hunters have indicated in surveys that they, that that's the way they feel that yes, killing a bird is, is important, but at the end of the day, being able to play the game is really what drives turkey hunters to get up in the morning at insane hours and do the, the stupid things we do. And, <laughs> um, and yeah, there is, there's a lot of concern from agencies that I've spoken to that, you know, when we start complaining that we're not hearing birds, then we start changing our behavior such as we stop buying licenses or we stop doing this activity or we we have other priorities such as soccer on weekends with the kids or fishing or yeah and and these other competing activities went out when you're not satisfied with whatever you're doing whether it's turkey hunting or anything else yeah 
So that creates some real challenges for agencies. And I know, I know for sure here in the South that agencies are, are keeping a keen eye on that because they, they want us to be satisfied. They want us to be happy. They want us to go out there and hear birds yeah. and they want us to continue to, to, to buy licenses and, and do the things we do that supports the economic engine within our own states. And ultimately having gobbling turkeys is what's going to do that. And if we don't have gobbling turkeys, then we don't have happy turkey hunters. So, so it's a balance for sure. And it's, it's a complex, complex balance. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then another piece to that is, I mean, like the travel aspect of why would I want to go hunt a place where I'm not going to hear turkeys from last year um, to a new spot that I might hear turkeys all over the place and have a better shot at shooting one. Yeah. 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 And I've, you know, I've, I've hunted all over the place and, and I've traveled to a bunch of different states and, and some of those places I, I won't go back, you know, yeah. because uh, I had an okay hunt, but, but when I hear, well, we have fewer birds than we did then. And I think back to my experiences then, and I say, well, if, you know, it, it was a, it was a tough couple of days of hunting back then. And if it's, if it's, you know, fallen off since then, I, then maybe I'll, I'll put my activities somewhere else. And, yeah. and I think as turkey hunters, you know, it's not just turkey hunters. That's, that's, that's us in general. That's yeah. fishermen. That's, I mean, whatever, you know, you go where you can be successful. And if that is in one state or the adjacent state or wherever it is, that's where we, that's where we tend to go. And, um, I think you see that in, in quite a few states out west, you know, that get a, like we've been talking about, they get a lot of activity. It's because we're successful out there and we and we hear a lot of birds. And, and I hope that that will continue. Yeah, absolutely. And then you talked about your experience as well on just turkey hunting. Uh, what have you seen for Georgia's birds in the last, I don't know, how many years that you've been hunting down there? been hunting here 10 years and because I've lived here 10 years and I can unequivocally say that our populations have declined and in some areas have declined precipitously in 10 years and all of the existing data clearly shows that we are not producing as many birds as we did years ago and in many cases we're you know we're harvesting either consistent number of birds or or this year a lower number of birds which we kind of expected um so yeah i've seen i've seen what the data suggests which is we just don't have as many birds as we as we used to and and i i you know i get some i get some naysayers that contact me and say well i'm seeing more birds or i'm seeing the same number of birds or whatever. And, and okay, you may be, but across the entire state and, and the Southeast region, we have fewer birds than we did a decade ago. And, and all of the existing data and anecdotal data from hunters themselves it, it, as a general rule will point to that, to that trend. Yeah. And when you're talking about producing less birds, are you talking about they're laying less eggs or the pulse aren't, um, surviving as long 
Um, what we're seeing is is lower nest success, so fewer nests are hatching. Okay. And of those that do hatch, fewer broods are surviving. So when I say we're just not making as many turkeys, that's what I mean. We're just yeah. we're not we're not getting as many young birds into our fall population as we used to. Okay. Um, so when you look at so as as a general rule, when you shoot and you capture like big groups of of turkeys in in the fall you would expect to see a lot of juvenile birds. You would expect to see a lot of young birds that were hatched that that summer. And we see very few. And that's been a trend that's been in place for many, for several, uh, a decade or more. You see lower and lower and lower numbers of young birds in the fall. And that just clearly shows you that you're just not making as many young birds. And yeah. if you're not making as many young birds, then your population logically has to be declining. Um, what one kind of alarming thing that pops out to me is that we see, of the young birds we see, most of them are, are males. Most of them are jakes. We see far fewer young females which suggests which we've known for years that there's a a sex bias in our broods in other words a lot of the poults that end up surviving are males and the reason for that is simple they're they're stronger they're bigger they're more aggressive um they tend to to you know dominate the the other birds around them so they they end up getting preference when it's time to sneak up under mom and brood during a rain event or whatever it is, they tend to get the lion's share of the attention. And so if you kind of think about that, if we're producing fewer birds, but a lot of those birds are males, then you could kind of see why you could continue to kill quite a few birds because you're you may be taking a greater percentage of your total male population because yeah. you're producing just enough males each year to keep up with the demand yeah. but your hens your females are getting fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer across say the decades and that's pretty consistent with all of the data that we've collected in the south that's pretty consistent with what's happened mm. yeah i mean that makes a lot of sense on <laughs> people are able to still go out and kill birds, but you're just seeing a decline with those hens. Yeah. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. And that's kind of what the, that's kind of what the harvest data shows too. You, you look at the, the harvest data in some States, it's fairly consistent. Yeah. You know, it varies a little bit from year to year, but not a, a ton. Um, and then you see in some States it harvest has peaked and is declining and has been declining for, for a number of years. And, and I think that's probably why you can see those trends is maybe in some cases we're making just enough birds to keep up with with the harvest. But since we don't harvest hens, at least in the south, a lot in yeah. the spring, we tend to focus on, on the males. Um, yeah. So that that's kind of what the data suggests. Yeah. Yeah. And you're saying that you guys don't harvest hens down there. We are able to shoot a hen in the fall if we want to. Um, and I don't know how effective that, uh, 
makes the turkey populations and whatnot. But I've always wondered on kind of why they allow shooting hens in the fall and not, yeah, uh, compared to it's like just not an at all. Oppor- it's just an opportunity thing. I mean, yeah, a lot of agencies historically allowed fall harvest because they wanted to give folks, you know, they wanted to give us opportunities to hunt during yeah. the fall and. And that activity is more common in, in certain areas than others. You know, in, in the deep south, we don't, a lot of states don't have fall harvest. Uh, you know, they don't have fall seasons. And, and yeah. if they do, they're really limited, you know. Um, part of the, the either sex harvest years ago was that turkey populations were doing really, really well. And, and agencies felt like, they could allow harvest of of hens in the fall and there was actually there's been a lot of research on that topic showing that if you keep the harvest in single digit percentages it it can be sustainable but once you start killing too many hens in the fall you actually drive your population downward um but you know I, i suspect we may need to revisit some of that work particularly in, in our populations that are, that are declining. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, we've noticed a little bit of uh, decline in the area that we hunt. I mean, I don't know why that would be probably some of the harsh winters we've had the past few years up here, but I mean, I mean it's still good. There's still a lot of birds, but just a little bit of decline and kind of always wondered on if it's the harsh winters or just, not producing enough nesting or whatever that is, but yeah, it can be the, the, you know, you, you, you guys deal with weather that we don't deal with in the South. Yeah. Uh, and when you get in Northern areas, you do see mortality, direct mortalities from winter. Yeah. So you do lose Easterns at the Northern part of their range and you lose Merriam's in areas to winter weather. So yeah, really severe winters, particularly back to back to back, type winners could be could be impactful yeah 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 oh, absolutely and then i also wanted to ask about i had a what was the question oh um with turkey calling on i mean you're able to use box calls slate calls mouth calls what is your favorite way to call them in that's most effective to you i usually just use a mouth call because I'm, I don't know. I, I feel weird, like moving while, yeah. I'm, while I'm trying to call. And, and I usually, when I'm sitting still, I just feel wonky if I've got a slate call out and I'm trying to balance it in my lap or whatever. So I tend to use a diaphragm all the time. I will occasionally use a slate call particularly if I'm calling for somebody else and I'm not shooting. Yeah. Then I will often use a slate call because I can call really subtle. And although I can call really subtle with my mouth too, I can call even quieter with a slate call. Um, And I find that's helpful sometimes if you can get the bird curious as to, you know, it's, was that a turkey I heard? Was that a hen I heard over there? I'm going to go check that out and just see. Yeah. You know, I've I've gotten some birds to cover those last twenty yards or thirty yards that that maybe they wouldn't have had I not been calling so quietly. So those kind of are my go tos. Um, I rarely use a box call or anything else. 
yeah. I carry I carry all that stuff in my vest because you know we have to do that as turkey hunters. We have to carry all that crap around. And, yeah. <laughs> um, all the but I don't I don't I don't use it a lot. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense on like being more quiet because I mean you'll see them hang up at seventy yards a lot, and then they just don't want to kind of finish all the way in. And maybe doing a little quieter of a call can make a lot of sense. Yeah, the way I think about it, and a, a buddy of mine actually pointed this out to me, and I think he's right. Um, you know, if you call loud, turkeys have a really keen sense of hearing. So if you call really loud, there's no question in their mind that was a hen and she's right over there. Yeah. But if you call really subtly and really quiet, he said, maybe he says, you know what, that I'm pretty sure that was a hen. That sounded like a hen. And then 10 minutes later, he hears it again. He's like, yep, yep. I'm pretty sure that's a hen. Maybe I'll go check that out. And then all of a sudden, an hour later, he shows up. Yeah. We through hunts with this guy. We've had birds end up in our lap from a long way away they were coming to calls that were so subtle that I could barely hear them while I was sitting with him. Yeah. Uh, so I, I tend to think there's some validity to this notion that sometimes if you can get the bird curious, that may be better than saying loudly, here I am, come check me out. Because then he may get to a point where he just says, you know what, you can see me at this point. You need yeah. to come over here. I'm not coming over there. Maybe there's something to it. Yeah. Something I noticed this year with the turkey that I shot, um, usually every year when I call, they'll just respond right back. But now it's like I would call out to them and then they'd respond like two minutes later and then they like keep getting closer. But I always kind of wondered on why that differed from years past on them usually just responding like literally right after the call. Who knows, man? We're you know we're talking about a bird with a brain the size of a, you know, a coin. Yeah. So, you know, I think sometimes we try to think through this stuff and logic, you know, rationalize it, and and in their brain maybe it doesn't work like that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then, kind of to wrap things up, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but uh, what would be your favorite spot that you or subspecies that you've hunted? um around the country um man i i don't know I, I think probably just from the standpoint of just fun and just having a good time uh would be merriam's because they're so pretty not that all turkeys aren't pretty but i love traveling out west and yeah. i love being in places where i can see and where there's terrain and and I just always have a really good time hunting Merriam's. Uh, not that I don't have a good time elsewhere. Yeah. But there's just something, there's just something aesthetic to me about those places that that bird lives. That's really cool. Um, but I, you know, I, I get a kick out of all, all of it. Uh, I will tell you that, I don't, there's no question in my mind, based on my experiences, that Easterns in the, in, in some places down here are just, 
are just sorry about that phone where it's off. Um, are just they're just miserable. I mean, they they can just <laughs> kick you and kick you and kick you and um, almost to the point of embarrassment. I mean, it it really is. It can be tough. So, but yeah, I will tell you the most gratifying birds I've ever killed were all they were easterns. They yeah. were they were birds that just they were just satanic birds that just won every day. And then finally I'd get that bird and, and those almost with, I can only think of one exception. Um, those were, those were Easterns that were in my neck of the woods that just kicked me down and kept me down. And I finally shot the bird and it's a, uh, it's quite a relief, but I, I love hunting all of them, man. I, if there's a goblin turkey and there's a cool place to go and there's <laughs> there's turkey hunters there that I can talk to, then I'm I'm game. Yeah. Well that's awesome. And then kinda anything that we didn't go over that you'd still like to talk about. I mean, we covered covered a I think lot. We covered quite a bit, yeah. yeah. I mean yeah, you start losing people's attention span <laughs> if you go too if you go too far and um people may not may not want to hear me talk much longer than that anyway, but <laughs> But no, I think we covered a lot. Well, I appreciate it, Miss Dr. Chamberlain. Thank you. Not a problem, man. Not a problem. It's good joining you. Yeah, you have a good one down in Georgia. You too. Take care. All right, see ya.